0: Dear Jesus, we need you now more than ever." Those are words from Ibrahim Azar, the Bishop of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Jordan and the Holy Land. He shared them on social media this past week with no further explanation. And of course, given the current situation, no further explanation was necessary. The news from Israel-Palestine has been horrific, to say the least. This immediate story begins in Sheikh Jarrah, a small, normally quiet East Jerusalem neighborhood. It's an area with apartment buildings, hotels, a few cafes, all firmly east of the Green Line, all in clearly within the region of the city designated as Palestinian. Many of you know that I lived in Jerusalem for a couple of years, and this was a common neighborhood to go to for dinner or a drink after work sort of a quiet, comfortable place. But in Israeli settlement, permanent housing for Israelis built on Palestinian land has been encroaching on Sheikh Jarrah. And it was recently announced that a number of Palestinian homes in the area would be forcefully evacuated so that Israelis could move in. It's an old story. It's happened time and again since Israel has been occupying East Jerusalem and the West Bank. But here it was happening one more time. More Palestinians treated unjustly, told to leave their homes and their land, and piled on top of so many indignities and wrongs. This was just too much. In the face of such clear disregard for their rights and their well-being, it is absolutely understandable that Palestinians would react with protest and anger, as they have. They have watched for so long as their rights have been taken from them. And as any effort at resistance on their part is met with overwhelming force. This conflict has escalated so quickly this past week in alarming ways. And any violence towards civilians needs to be condemned, of course. There's no question about that. But in the middle of everything that's taking place, I think we must hear the desperation felt by Palestinians today bishop Azar's words speak volumes. Dear Jesus, we need you now more than ever. Those are words coming from Jerusalem right now, but they you could imagine them coming from lots of other places besides. They could come from Myanmar where the military regime is imposing a harsh and oppressive rule, cracking down on protests and crushing protesters. They could come from India. Where the pandemic is raging with health services unable to keep up dear jesus we need you now more than ever they are words that could fit any number of contexts right now which can make jesus's ascension a rather challenging story today in this world with so many needs and so much that is broken i imagine we would like to see jesus down on the ground rolling up his sleeves and getting busy fixing the messes around us. So what are we supposed to make of this image of him floating away from the earth, lifting off and heading for the clouds? We don't tend to talk about the ascension all that much, I think. Jesus' birth and death and resurrection get a whole lot more attention. And it can sometimes be hard to know what to do with this strange story from the beginning of the book of Acts. But the Bible and the church through history agree that the ascension isn't an afterthought or a little footnote to the story, but is in fact a major turning point, a hinge between one chapter and the next. The way the Bible presents it, I think you can sort of plot Jesus's life story into three big sections or chapters. In chapter one, Jesus is present in the world the way any human being is present. He's a flesh and blood person who eats and sleeps and lingers around the dinner table for long conversation late into the night. He lives this remarkable life of teaching and healing and pointing to God's reign of justice and is killed by the powers whose secure ways he so profoundly threatens. The gospels spend the vast majority of their time covering this chapter, of course. So that's... Chapter, section one. In chapter two, Jesus is risen from the tomb. Things are more mysterious here. He comes and he goes, appearing in the faces of strangers on the road, showing up in locked rooms, surprising his friends and followers with his continued bodily presence. He's present in a different way, of course, but he's still very much on the loose in the world. There's a sense of the rules of the game having shifted of the ground shaking a little beneath everybody's feet. This chapter of the risen Jesus is a remarkable one, but it's very short, a handful of stories in the gospels covering just 40 days. And then of course comes chapter three, the longest of the chapters by far, beginning with the reading that we heard this morning and stretching through the centuries to the present and beyond. And in this chapter, we say Jesus has ascended. The bodily appearances have stopped. Jesus isn't showing up on the beach with broiled fish anymore. Something has changed. Jesus has been taken up into heaven, in the language of the book of Acts. We actually mark this profound shift in the way we say the Apostles' Creed every Sunday. We talk about the first chapters of Jesus' life in the past tense. Right? Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. All history, all spoken about in the past tense. And then when it comes to the ascension, we switch to the present. He ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. It's a major shift. From the realm of past events to the life of Jesus in the present to the chapter that we are living in right now. Jesus has ascended and is seated at the right hand of God, we say. Okay, but what does that mean for us and for our world? I love what Martin Luther said about this question 500 years ago. It figured prominently into debates in Luther's time about whether Jesus could be present in the sacraments. Some theologians and leaders at the time suggested that Jesus could not possibly be present in the bread and wine because he was at God's right hand. He's not here, they said, he's up there. Luther saw things differently. The right hand of God, he said, is a way of describing the almighty power of God. Which, is at one and the same t- which at one and the same time can be nowhere, and yet must be everywhere. He goes on to say that this power of God is present in the tiniest tree leaf, in the hairs on your arm, in a single kernel or seed. And at the same time, it is so vast and incomprehensible that neither this world nor even a thousand worlds could contain it. So when we talk about Jesus being at the right hand of God, Luther says, we're not talking about some dusty throne up in the clouds. We're not even talking about any one place. We're talking about Jesus being present wherever the power of God is present. All of which means that Jesus is far from gone, far from absent from this world and its hurts and concerns. In fact, he's all over the place. He's there in the buds coiled on branches in this season, ready to burst into blossom. He's there in the words of parents or aunts or uncles or teachers reminding children of their dignity, their precious worth in the sight of God. He's there in the courageous actions of nurses and doctors all over the world, working with the resources at hand to serve the people in their care. He is there in the cries for justice in Israel-Palestine and in acts of nonviolent resistance to the occupation. He is there in gestures of solidarity, in people recognizing their common humanity across borders and boundaries and prejudices. He is far closer than we usually imagine. I have always found the words of the angel in the Ascension story a bit strange. Jesus has just said farewell to his disciples and then floated up into the clouds, and no sooner has he drifted out of sight than this angel pipes up, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? I think there's a pretty obvious answer to that, right? Who wouldn't be looking up after a spectacle like that? It sounds a little strange, but I think finally the angel means to bring the disciples' gaze back to the ground back to where they will encounter Jesus from now on. Not way up in the clouds, but right here on the earth, in the life all around them, in the people standing beside them at that very moment. Don't spend your time looking up there for Jesus, imagining he's off somewhere else, the angel says, to the stunned disciples and to us. The ascension means that he is, in fact, present and active in you and in the people around you, in words and actions of love and justice and hope. The realization that Jesus is never far, that we are never alone or distant from the love of God, is itself a source of profound hope. We can keep going because we know that God is present working around and within us. The Kairos document is a statement written by a number of Palestinian church leaders and theologians more than a decade ago, outlining the theological grounds for the continued search for justice and peace in Israel-Palestine, and its words feel as pertinent today as they ever have, I think. Hope is the capacity to see God in the midst of trouble. It reads... Isn't that a profound statement? Hope is the capacity to see God in the midst of trouble and to be co-workers with the Holy Spirit who is dwelling in us. From this vision derives the strength to be steadfast, remain firm, and work to change the reality in which we find ourselves. Hope means not giving into evil but rather standing up to it and continuing to resist it. Friends, that's where the ascension leaves us, not looking off into the heavens, but to the world around us, not finally with Jesus's absence, but with his presence, with us, always and forever, giving us the strength to continue the struggle for justice, to be coworkers with God. Dear Jesus, we need you now more than ever, at work in your world, at work in your people, at work in each of us. Give us the courage to respond. Amen.